0: In January 2023, a new, peer-reviewed study published in the journal Science confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only did Exxon know that climate change was happening, that their products were the primary source of the problem, and that things would get exponentially worse if fossil fuel use continued to grow, but that their scientists were right about it — shockingly accurate, in fact they modeled and predicted with terrifying accuracy what would happen if the status quo continued. Those models were done in the 1970s and 1980s, so when the company was saying in the 1990s that the science was uncertain, they were misleading the public about their own science. Over the next few weeks, we'll be re-releasing season one of Drilled, which covered the origins of climate denial and Exxon's role in it. But we're going to introduce those episodes with excerpts from a new interview with the lead author of that science study, Jeffrey Supran, who actually made an appearance in the first season of Drilled as well. Here's Jeffrey. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple such a good idea this show in the aftermath of major disasters there is always a swarm of media attention the public is captivated by breaking news there's coverage and controversy and then the cameras and the public just move on but the stories are not finished ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over In Season 1, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me about this study. What prompted this particular study?
1: Well, so in a weird way, it actually has its origins on Twitter, um, because, <laughs> uh, as things do these days. Because, you know, back in 2017, when Naomi and I published our original analysis of Exxon's climate communications, um, a, a little while after that, I think, one of our colleagues, Stefan Ramstorff, who's a climate scientist in Germany, he saw one of Exxon's early climate graphs in our study in the supplementary materials. And I think, you know, because he's a physical scientist, he's a smart yeah. guy. He had this moment of inspiration and he tried overlaying real world historical temperatures on top. And I think he was just taken aback by the overlap. And he tweeted it and he wrote a German blog about it. And then a couple other climate scientists subsequently you know followed suit and it it went you know at least by like climate change twitter standards quite viral as you know and as you know aoc used it for questioning a former Exxon scientist in congress and Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. that that whole process led us to gradually realize that you know there was this sort of penny drop moment that despite all the time we'd spent scrutinizing the language that Exxon has been using in these documents there's this whole other layer you know, of their the actual data of their climate projections that no one had assessed. And in, a, in that sense, the data have just been hiding there in plain sight for several years. So essentially, this project was an effort to expand that Twitter meme and <laughs> subject it to peer review. And yeah, that's kind of like how it came about. And it basically evolved into this sort of process of bringing a A physical science lens to this problem that we previously applied a social science lens, and that and that's how the. But we honestly like that we did this work a couple years ago, and then the joys of peer review mean that you know it's taken all this time to (laughs) to publish it. So so I'm describing this as though it just happened, but actually this was like I was living in a different part of the country, and you know everything. (laughs) It's like everything um, was different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, That's kind of how it came about, and and and. Yeah, I mean, I think just like consistently over the last couple of years, I've seen every now and then, you know, people will like tweet the same graph with the line on it and every time yeah. it kind of goes viral because I think, you know, a yeah. picture tells a thousand words and it's really made me kind of realize like, okay, there's like a visual power in this.
0: What that graph shows is just how accurate some of the scientists we spoke to for season one of Drilled were in their predictions. That scientist that AOC questioned in Congress was Marty Hofert, who you'll hear from a lot in these episodes. I also want to point to the groundbreaking work done by journalists Neela Banerjee, David Hasselmeyer, and Lisa Song at Inside Climate News, Suzanne Rust of the Los Angeles Times, and Sarah Jerving, Katie Jennings, and Masako Melissa Hirsch of Columbia Journalism School. Those folks first published many of the internal documents and interviews with former Exxon scientists that told the world back in 2015. Exactly what Exxon knew. I'll link to that work in the show notes. Coming up after the break, the first episode we ever did the Bell Labs of Energy. This is Drilled, and I'm Amy Westervelt.
2: Information and influence campaigns. This is probably the most sophisticated approach to trying to modify policy outcomes that corporations and public relations companies engage in.
0: That's Bob Bruhl, an environmental sociology researcher at Brown University. For the past few years, Bruhl has been looking into how the anti-climate science movement began. Who was involved, who worked with who, how much money they spent and how and why it was effective. This is a story that's been told a few different times in a few different ways, but always with some key pieces missing. And let's just say we've found the pieces.
2: There is no question in the scientific community of people who publish in peer-reviewed journals that climate change is real. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that. a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? Exxon passed a golden opportunity to leave. The mere fact that a climate modeling group was established and that the tanker project was funded in the late 70s into the start of 1981 or two indicates that upper management felt this was a good idea and wanted to pursue it, funded it. Simply making bald-faced predictions and then calling for solutions before you see whether your your predictions pan out. I mean, that's not science. That's you know, that's just alarmism.
0: Some of the predictions, like sea level rise, go all the way back to the 1950s. And what we're seeing now is that all these predictions are coming true. A lot of people today think of Russian bot armies and information wars and the well-oiled political propaganda machine operating in the U.S. as a modern invention brought about by data mining and social media. In fact, those are just new tools in an established trade. And that trade was perfected in the 1980s and 1990s on one long-running, well-orchestrated campaign that spanned industries. It manipulated not only the media, but also various institutions and the general public. It turned America's individualism on itself and twisted it. It planted the right people at the right parties to make sure progress could be stopped. I'm talking about patient zero in the U.S. propaganda war. The creation of climate denial. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. We don't often talk about the 1970s and 1980s as a time of great hope and innocence, nor do we tend to think of it as a time of great innovation, especially if you weren't alive at the time or if you were still a kid, like I was. In retrospect, those decades are about excess and greed. Reagan, your mom's terrible hair and shoulder pads, a conservative backlash against the social progressivism of the 1960s. But that's looking back through the lens of what happened next. In the moment itself, the late 70s and early 80s were still pretty optimistic. America was leading the world in science and engineering, and most Americans believed we could innovate our way out of any problem.
1: And this dependence on foreign sources of all is of great concern to all of us. In the year 2000, The solar water heater behind me, which is being dedicated today, will still be here, supplying cheap, efficient energy.
0: That clip you heard just there? That was Jimmy Carter in 1979. Six years previously, in 1973, the oil embargo had hit, prompting massive investments in renewable energy. By the time Carter was installing a solar water heater on the White House, Americans were griping about gas lines and foreign oil. And U.S. oil companies were really trying to do something about it. Exxon alone was spending millions on advanced research.
3: This is an internal Exxon memo from August 1981. And a guy named Mr. Glass is writing to Roger Cohen, the director uh, of the center, and says, the only real problem I have is with the second clause of the last sentence in the first paragraph, which says, quote, but changes of a magnitude well short of catastrophic, quote-unquote. I think that this statement may be too reassuring.
0: Meet Kurt Davies, an investigator who's dug up dozens of documents that reveal what exactly the oil industry was up to during these years. And he's not the only one. That document he read there was dug up by journalists at Inside Climate News, and others have been discovered by journalists at Columbia University. That document goes on to say it is distinctly possible that the corporate planning department scenario will later produce effects which will indeed be catastrophic, at least for a substantial fraction of the Earth's population. In another Exxon memo sent a few years before the one Kurt just read there, scientist James Black warned Exxon executives that in five to 10 years, we could be facing some hard decisions about energy usage and climate change. He was talking about making those decisions in the early 80s. But by that time, Exxon was starting to move in a different direction. At the time, when Black warned Exxon executives about climate change, they took him seriously.
3: They really wanted to have a research center that would be valuable unto itself to the to the country and the world at large. It was going to be Exxon's Bell Lab. The
2: and it was supposed to be something like Bell Labs, you know, where the the uh, the oil companies would... Try to do advanced research. Exxon was trying to become a research power in the energy industry, in the way
3: uh, the Bell Labs was in the communication industry.
0: That was former Exxon scientist Ed Garvey, Exxon consultant Marty Hofort, and former Exxon scientist Moral Cohen, all talking about Exxon's desire to build a Bell Labs-type research arm. Bell Labs, AT&T's research arm, invented and open-sourced, among various other things, the transistor, fiber-optic cables, satellite communication, the cell phone, the laser, and the solar cell. Exxon wanted to be that to the energy industry in the 1970s.
3: At the time when I was there, it was really the the heady days of that development. I mean, Exxon at the time, there was Exxon Nuclear, there was was Exxon Solar, and uh, Exxon was developing batteries. I mean, I shared an office with a battery chemist. I don't know what his exact contributions were, but I know they weren't trivial in terms of lithium battery development. I uh, had other chemists in the area working on other types of batteries and improving battery cycle life and stuff. So for storage, some of the scientists in the office space that I was in were doing solar panel development.
0: Ed Garvey was a recent college grad when he started at Exxon and thrilled to get to work with the scientists there. The tech industry likes to think of itself as the country's first innovators, but scientists have always pushed toward the future. And in the 1970s and 1980s, those scientists mostly worked for blue-chip companies. Big companies like IBM, AT&T, Xerox, and Exxon were centers of innovation at the time. These were the incubators of the future, and they hired only the best and brightest.
3: It was a campus of scientists. I mean, we're all. I mean, it was it was really really a heady time. I mean, I was just fresh out of college, and all the work of all these PhDs. And, you know, they are all talking about the research and this, and research and that. It was a it was a very exciting time.
0: In fact, the level of science being done at Exxon at the time was so high that Garvey's boss, Henry Shaw, sent him back to school just a year after Garvey started.
3: As I was working in the Exxon Research and Engineering Company, he said, if you want to work in this division, in this branch of the company, you need a union card, which is a PhD. I said, if you don't have a PhD, nobody's going to take you serious here. So he said, but we can use this project for your thesis. You've got to complete the coursework, but this project will become your, your dissertation.
0: Exxon was so serious about its Bell Labs of energy dream, it even poached Bell Labs Executive Research Director, Ed David, to run its research arm, the Exxon Research and Engineering Company. And at one point, it planned to open a massive research campus in Clinton, New Jersey.
3: Exxon was developing this really big center for research. It was going to be like a Bell Labs campus. Okay, it was a beautiful facility, and everybody was designing the, the, what they wanted in terms of their new laboratories. And I actually designed a laboratory for the for the TANKER project.
0: Garvey lucked out and got put on one of the company's most exciting experiments, what they called the TANKER project. At the time, there was decades worth of data about CO2 emissions collected from the poles and from atop Mauna Loa on the Big Island of Hawaii. That data had formed the basis of scientist Charles Keeling's work in the 1960s, in which he was able to show a steady curve upward as humans began to burn more and more fossil fuels. Scientists today refer to it as the Keeling curve. But the scientific community had questions around how CO2 was behaving elsewhere on the planet particularly around the equator and in the oceans.
3: At the time, there have been lots of measurements at the poles, near the, in the northern Atlantic and in the Antarctic, showing that, yeah, the water gets really cold and it really can suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's where all the CO2 is being absorbed. But the other part of the equation is, okay, how much comes out of the equator? So we did this with the Atlantic, with the SO Atlantic, measuring the CO2 release from the oceans.
0: So Exxon was footing the bill for multiple scientists and for a wide range of cutting-edge equipment. Garvey and Shaw started out using equipment from the Lamont-Doherty lab at Columbia University. Lamont-Doherty was a leading-edge atmospheric research lab that the Exxon team worked closely with. The machine was picking up too much noise from the ship, so Garvey and Shaw designed a gas chromatograph to do the job, modeled after a machine Ray Weiss had developed at Scripps Institute. The device took about 10 readings per hour of the CO2 in both the air and the ocean as the tanker sailed the Atlantic and crossed the equator.
3: That was going to be Exxon's contribution, at least to understand the Atlantic, and maybe we'd go on and do other oceans, hopefully.
0: What's very clear in speaking with Garvey and various other scientists, both those working at Exxon at the time and those conducting climate science elsewhere, is that any uncertainty that existed at the time was not over whether climate change was happening or whether humans were contributing to it.
3: The issue was not where are we going to have a problem, the issue was simply. How soon and how fast and how bad was it going to be? Not, not if. Nobody at Exxon, when I was there, was discussing that. It was just, okay, how fast is it going to come? Can we do something about it? How bad is it going to be? And, and you know, when is it going to get here? But not
2: if.
0: That sentiment was echoed by Marty Hofert, a longtime climate scientist who worked at NYU and consulted for Exxon from the late 70s until 2000.
2: By this time, we had a lot of data that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was increasing. Uh, and even though the temperature of the Earth hadn't increased yet, we had the various mathematical models, very advanced computer models, from which we could sort of figure out how the climate of the Earth might change in some future time if we kept burning hydrocarbons for energy.
0: It's hard to imagine today, but scientists and companies were not at odds on the issue of climate science in the 1970s, and neither were Republicans and Democrats. We
2: knew that this had potential impact on the bottom line of, of Exxon and that it could affect uh, you know, geopolitics, but that was an abstraction. We were more interested in alternative sources of energy that would, for example, very practically speaking, allow a middle-class American lifestyle, North American lifestyle, to continue without burning
0: fossil fuel. If you were a child of the 90s, it might be difficult to reconcile this 1970s version of Exxon with the company that would shrug off the Valdez oil spill just 10 years later. But the Tanker project was just one of several ways that Exxon was working, not only to understand climate change, but also to transition to a new energy future in which it wanted to ensure it had a key role. Here's Ed Garvey again.
3: Exxon saw this as, if we can get Columbia to work with us, if we can make contributions to the, to the real contributions of the science, then people are gonna take us seriously when we tell them these are problems or these are limitations that we're, to how you might limit fossil fuel consumption and what the what the ramifications would be. I think, I do think that, I mean, Exxon at the time, there was Exxon nuclear, there was Exxon coal, there was Exxon solar, and uh, at the time, Exxon was trying to be an energy company, not an oil company, okay? And so being taken seriously at the fossil fuel discussions was, uh, to their mind, and I think it made sense to me at the time that, yeah, this is how you would do it if you want to be seen as not just being an industry hack who says, we don't want you to regulate our industry, period. You need to be saying, oh, yeah, we recognize that this is a problem and this is how we think you should solve it. And these are the these are the things that are going on and so on and so forth. And we, we're making real contributions here.
0: Hofer, too, believed there would be a transition in the 80s. And so I
2: think what happened is they started to realize that this, this can actually affect our business. I was very naive. I thought that if they realized that climate change was real, They would start making big investments in renewable energy. It's a huge company. They had a huge amount of profits. Why couldn't they sink some of their profits into a new area, which was going to be new business?
0: Had they continued down that path, we'd be living in a very different world, looking at a very different future. Next time on Drilled.
3: It seems to me that the fundamental thing that underlies it is this change in what I call the political power within the corporation. They became much more conservative, much more concerned with the business, the traditional lines of business, and automatically much more uh, focused on preserving that.
2: I think what happened is they started to realize that this, this can actually affect our business. It went from a really
3: heady time to a really kind uh, of despair, where I think the company was shrinking, oils, oil revenue was shrinking, and the Bell Labs idea went out the
0: window. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The series was reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer and composer is David Whited. Richard Wiles is our executive producer. Our story and concept development consultant is Rekha Murthy. Lucas Lisakowski designed our cover art. Katie Ross, Michael Ann Petrella, and Julia Ritchie provided additional editing. Drilled is supported in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. You can find Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast, it helps us find listeners.